Good morning. We're starting a new series called Life in the Trenches. And before I start that, let me say something. How many people here are over 45? Okay, I see that hand. Now, Helen, Helen, you should, your hand should be up. You're over 45. Come on. There we go. See, I see. People don't pay attention. I see. Okay, everybody over 45, look up here. Many of you have grown weary and you've lost heart. And the reason is that you fixed your eyes on a political system. You fixed your eyes saying, if we only had the right leader in, then, and you just fill the blank in, be the good old days, great economy. You need to knock it off. Why? You're scaring the children. (laughs) The generation behind us takes its cues from us. And here's what they're hearing. And here's what I'm hearing. If we don't get the right leader, it'll be the end of the world. That's why some are saying, well, if so-and-so gets elected, we're moving out of the country. If we don't get the right leader... If we don't fix the economy, it's going to be the end of the world. If we don't have religious freedom like mom and dad had it, it's going to be the end of the world. If we don't have the right laws and politics, it's going to be the end of the world. I got news for you. The end of the world only comes when Jesus says it comes. And when he says it comes, there's going to be no leader that can stop it. Now, Please hear what I'm saying. Government matters, law matters, policies matters, but nothing matters more than Jesus Christ. And our faith rests in him. And for decades in America, we have been guilty. My generation has been guilty of placing its faith elsewhere. And what we haven't learned in the Old Testament and New Testament, that nothing can thwart God's plans. So, Fix your eyes on Jesus. Model to the next generation that God is in control. Model to the next generation that he is involved and we take our cues from him. And that every single day is an opportunity to shine his glory. And light shines brightest when it's very dark. Amen? Okay, I had to get that off my chest. Thank you. Now I can preach. We're going to look at examples of how life goes when we're backed into a corner. You can turn to Judges 6. We're going to look at Gideon this morning. If you see the title, it's called The Idiot's Guide to Winning. And somebody has made a fortune in America writing idiot guidebooks to everything. An Idiot's Guide to. And I started looking down through some of these books, and I found one called An Idiot's Guide to Connecting with Your Angels. It says, wow. There's another one called An Idiot's Guide to Quantum Physics. And I'm thinking to myself, if you're into quantum physics, why would you want an idiot's guide to it? Because they know nothing about it. So we're looking at Gideon this week. Next week, we're going to look at Hosea. And I kind of politely entitled that lesson, The Marriage from Hell. Week after that, Jeremiah. It's about when everybody blames you and despises you for doing the right thing. And then Job, 
when you literally lose everything and just when you don't think it could get worse, life backs up and runs over you to see what it hits. So this is what this series is about. And again, for me, starting points are critical. And when you look at one of the starting points in America today that we face is there's a war on truth and reason. There is no basis for truth. It's based on feelings. It's based on opinions. I mean, let's face it. There's a national uproar over who can use what bathroom. And the DOJ, the Department of Justice, is getting involved in this. And the Internet and social media have become our source for truth. And we go to that source with preconceived ideas, and we prove what we already believe. Today, you cannot sit down and have a reasonable conversation without it being reduced to accusation and name-calling. And we are guilty of the same thing inside the church. Somebody comes along and shares that they struggle with same-sex tendencies. What do we do? We say, find Jesus, pray, marry someone of the opposite sex, and everything will be okay. No, we sit down and we hear their stories. There's always a backstory. There are reasons why that we are who we are. And we, because we believe in the value and dignity of every single person, are the ones to help them see who God is and what God can do in their life. Amen? So part of the problem is us. This war on truth and reason, sometimes religious people do in the name of God the truth according to them, and not the truth and reason according to God. Why? Because let's face it, we cannot reason with God, can we? I I know we read the verses out of Isaiah. It says, your thoughts are not my thoughts, your ways. And we say, wait a minute, God. Well, yeah, we get that. We know you're higher than us. We know you're more intelligent. But let me tell you how it should be done. I want to start with three questions. As we look at Gideon in Judges chapter 6, there's three questions we have to ask ourselves. The first is, what source of information do we trust? The second, who do we listen to? And the third is, what actions have we taken? Now, when you look at those three questions, the third question defines what the first two really are, no matter what we say. So if we say that we believe that God sets up kings and then we behave in an irrational way during a political election? See, we really don't believe that. When we're afraid of what's going to happen due to what mankind is doing, we don't trust that God has everything in control according to his time. See, biblically, we are called to live a life of significance. Now, when I say that, it's God's version of significance, not ours. The paradox is, about that statement is that people around us, how we live may not appear to be significant. Because everyone has an opinion about who and what is significant. And today, it usually has to do with two fields. One is the athletic field, and two is the movie industry. But there are millions of significant followers of Jesus doing things that you and I will never, ever hear about. Christ says some crazy things like this. 
The last shall be first and the least shall be greatest. The foolish are really the ones that are wise. And to us, we say, well, isn't that backwards? And James comes along and says ridiculous things about having joy when life is falling apart. I mean, how do we reconcile those two? And then we have Peter. We studied Peter last fall that says, listen, make sure you are ready to talk about the hope you have when they are killing your friends around you, when they are throwing them before the lions, when you face death, live in such a way that you are so hopeful that people say, tell me about that hope. Then there's this dying to self stuff. And we have to ask ourselves, how do we truly become selfless in a world that constantly is in your face and it's all about you? It's all about taking those selfies. Judges chapter 6. If you're not there, turn there. We're going to read a portion of Scripture. And I love this story. And understand again, when you look about truth and reason, everything that God reasons with Gideon does not make sense to us. In God's fashion, we find out less is more. Now, in our fashion, we think more is better. But God says, no, you listen to me, less is more. Judges chapter 6, verse 1. And you can follow along the screen if you didn't bring your Bibles this morning. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. That sets the context. And for seven years, he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in a mountain, cleft caves and strongholds. So here's the picture. They did evil. They walked away from God. They didn't know that. They didn't think they did, but they did. Midian comes in. They oppress them. It is so bad. They leave their homes. They leave their towns. They leave their villages. And they go live in caves out in a desert. Now, what we see here are consequences to particular choices. Key phrase in the book of Judges, it's found in chapter 6, but it's also found at the end of the book, is this. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Two times. And that defines their political, economic, and moral structures. And what we have to understand about human nature is this, because we all experience consequences. But so often when we experience negative consequences for negative choices we make, our human nature shifts the blame. We say it's somebody else's fault. They're the reason I am in the caves. They're the reason I'm out away from my friends and family. They're the reason I'm running for my life. And we play victim. See, playing victim means there are other people responsible for my happiness. So, if I'm not happy, I'm going to sue a baker for $135,000 for emotional damages for not making me a cake for my wedding day. And I got a judge who agrees with me, so I must be right. I didn't get my way, therefore somebody has to pay. How many times have you heard that? But our rational minds tell things like this when we start reading this story. Why would these people choose to live in caves? Who in their right mind would live that? Why don't they just pull their bootstraps up and go do something about it? But whenever we experience consequences, especially those of our own doing, 
we use this little phrase. We say, that's not fair. What did I do to deserve this? And we enslave ourselves to the gods of this world. And what's fascinating to me, while we cry out to God for relief, we get angry when someone messes with our God. You don't touch this over here because that's off limits. Let's pick the story up. Let's jump down to verse 7. When the Israelites cried to the Lord, that was a good thing, and because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, and he probably didn't say what they wanted to hear. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You can read between the lines saying you put yourselves back in slavery. I snatched you, in verse 9, from the power of Egypt and from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them from before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. That's the key phrase. We claim to believe in God. We claim to follow him. We claim he is sovereign. And then when it comes down to our practicality, we just fail to listen because we do little add-ons. And then we enslave ourselves. Look at verse 11. The angel of the Lord, and I don't have time to discuss who that was this morning, came and sat down under the oak tree of Oprah that belonged to Joash, the Aborite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. So what you see here is a covert operation. It's kind of like his own little distillery hidden back in the fields so many nights could not touch it. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Now talk about an intro line. If you're there, you're working hard, you're trying to feed your family and feed the people in the caves and whatnot, and a stranger comes up and calls you mighty warrior, you say to yourself, I really like this guy. He is full of discernment. I mean, he he finally sees in me what nobody else sees. In verse 13, but Sir Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, And this is probably not what he wanted to hear. (laughs) Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Okay, here's the kicker. You may like the name Mighty Warrior. But when God names you that, he wants you to do Mighty Warrior stuff. He just doesn't want the label. He just doesn't want the name. He doesn't want the title. He doesn't want the show. He wants you to listen and follow his instruction. What does Gideon do? Look at verse 15. But Lord Gideon asked, how can I save Israel? I mean, isn't that normally what we do? And then he gives this whole rationale, this reason about why he cannot do this. My clan is the weakest in Manasseh. I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you. And you will strike down 
all the Midianites together. At this point, there's no plan. There's no strategy. There's nobody else. There's just him. And the army that he's going to go against is described as, as locusts covering the entire country, having camels too many to count as far as the sands of the seas. So you're talking about a force that is tens upon tens upon tens upon tens of thousands. No strategy at this point. So Gideon in verse 17 says this, if now I have found favor in your eyes, now he knows he has because the angel Lord came and asked him to do this. This is kind of a nice way, a nice spiritual way of trying to get out of a job that looks too tough. Give me a sign that it's really you talking to me. And God went and did this cool thing. Gideon brought some meat and stuff for a sacrifice, put on a rock, and flames came out of the rock and burned everything up. It's one of those God moments. In fact, it's one of those God moments, if you ever had one, that you're often afraid to share because of what people might think. Because we know, according to reason, that God doesn't do anything weird that we cannot rationally understand, does he? I mean, yeah, we read stories about this, but God doesn't do that kind of stuff today, does he? That's for the charismatic people over there somewhere. (laughs) We all know that God will not behave in an illogical manner. Now I want to say something here. Geez, somebody just tried to call me on my iPad. They didn't like what I had to say, okay? I'll talk to you afterwards. Here's our problem in America. We as believers should never seek the experience. We should always seek the God of the experience. I want to say that again. The problem we have in America is that we often seek the experience rather than seeking the God of the experience. And after all this happened and Gideon's like, wow, yeah, you really are from God and you're telling me to do this. The angel says, I want you to go down. I want you to tear down your dad's Baal altar. Tear down the Asherah poles behind it. Now, remember I said before that while we cry out to God and we want God to rescue us and we have our little addictions, our, our enslavement, and we don't want people to touch that. What happens here? Look at verse 29. After they found out that somebody messed with Baal's altar, they asked each other, who did this? And when they carefully investigated, they were told Gideon, son of Joash, did it. The men of the town to manage of Joash, bring out your son. He must die. I mean, think about this conversation. He messed with a foreign false god that God says, don't worship And they cry out, why are we here? And they're hanging on to their little Baal and Asherahs. Because he has broken down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. But Joash, and dad had some wisdom here. He kind of used their politically correct thinking against them. Here's what he said to the hostile crowd around him. Are you going to plead Baal's cause? Are you going to try to save him? Whoever fights for him shall be put to death by morning. It's kind of a nice way of saying, you mess with my son, you're going to mess with me. If Baal really is a god, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. So that day, they called Gideon 
Zerubbabel. Now, they gave him that name. Here's what it means. Let Baal contend with him. God gave him the name Mighty Warrior. I like that one better. Because he broke down Baal's altar. He used their illogic against them. Now, do we have any illogical thinking going on today? I don't know if you heard this news story, but kindergartens across America are changing the words to Baba Blacksling. They have now defined that that nursery rhyme is racist. And now it's Baba Rainbow Sheep. I know growing up at the farm, Rainbow Sheep were my favorite. Maybe someone needs to use this technique of illogic and say, and ask the right questions, by the way. Say, what's going to happen when these kids grow up, go to a farm, and they see there are no such thing as rainbow sheep? we got a logic thinking going all over the place. And, and part of our dilemma then is that, that we want to contend with our own reason. But the reason of God is very different than the reason of man, isn't it? I can hear an amen. I don't know if you believe that. Look at verse 33. Now all the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples joined forces. They must have heard there's a little rebellion going on. Crossed over the Jordan and camped out in the valley of Jezreel. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, summoning the Aborites to follow him. He sent out messengers throughout Manasseh, calling them to arms, also to Asher, Zebdon, Naphtali. And they went up to meet with them. And Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand as you've promised, look, and here we go with this deal-making again. By the way, this whole fleece thing, understand that Gideon already knew what God wanted him to do. He tested him once. I know sometimes we lay fleeces out and we say that's really biblical. Understand laying a fleece out like this is an act of unbelief. He knew what God wanted him to do. So here we have the story of this fleece. Look, I'm going to place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there's dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you said. And that's what happened. Gideon rose early the next day, squeezed the fleece, and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. And you can almost see that he was disappointed. <laughs> then Gideon said to God, don't be angry with me. Let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. This time, make the fleece dry and the ground covered with dew. That night, God did so. Only the fleece was dry and all the ground was covered with dew. Again, it's interesting how many times we lay fleeces out to test God on an issue, but this issue was already settled. It was a lack of faith. And really, he did this not once, not twice, but three times. So let's continue in the story. Chapter 7. Early in the morning, Jerubbaal, which is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Herod, the camp of Midian, which was north of them, in the valley near the hill of Moriah. The Lord said to Gideon, and I love this. You can imagine Gideon's looking around. There's about 32,000 people. Now, again, the scene we find out later is the armies that were massing, they just said it was like locusts spreading all over the country. There was too many to count. So 32,000, while it seemed a lot, still was kind of like, oh, I wish I had more. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands. 
That does not make any rational sense, does it? But who are you going to listen to? In order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her, announce to the people, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left while 10,000 remained. I'm sure Gideon wished it would have been the other way around. 10,000 left and 22,000 remained. But, you know, the emotional makeup of following God, it's tough because there are times he tells us things to do that our natural inclination doesn't want to do. But we have to decide who are we going to trust. In verse 4, but the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. By the way, it's interesting that he challenged God how many times? Three. And we're going to find out he, God says, I'm going to whittle this group down how many times? Well, it's three times. The Lord said there to Gideon, there are still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I will sift them for you. This one go with you, he shall go. But if I say this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took men down to the water. There the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues like a dog from those who kneel down to drink. 300 men lapped with their hands to their mouths. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, with 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give many nights into your hands. Let all the other men go, each to his own place. So first he had the trumpet, 32,000 came. Second, he whittled 22,000 out. And then he took it down to 300 to fight an army that was unthinkable in size. So do you understand that with God, less is more? Do we believe that? There's a lot of different lessons we can learn, and I've already kind of talked about some of them, but let me kind of consolidate them into three this morning. Here's the first. God plays by a different set of standards than we do. Now I want to do this disclaimer up front because in my life there's been things said where people say God told me, and there are things that people have done in the name of the Lord, and they fit this principle, but they're just extensions of our egos and deception. We want something, so we attach God's name to it, and it has nothing to do with God. Now, having said that, we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Understand that God plays by a very different set of standards. And our illusion is that we have answers for everything. Our illusion is that we have strategies for everything. Our illusion is that if we just get the right plan in place, then everything will work out the way it's supposed to. Truth is, usually we make those up and call them informed opinions. And this whole faith thing is really hard. We like things to make sense. We like things that are clear. We like the answer sheet to the test before we take the test. God will not always use the people you think he ought to use. And God will not always do what needs to be done the way that you think it ought to be done. 
And the question then is, how do we know the difference? Well, that's where study in light of God's word is existing truth, not the internet, not the social media, but it's God's word. That's what we gain wisdom from. It's why we connect with godly people who pray and seek with you. It's why unity is important. It's why diversity inside that unity is important because we need people who think differently and who are different than us. I mean, Jesus prayed for our unity just before his crucifixion. Father, may they be one as you and I are one. You and me, I and you, that the world may know that you have sent me. Do we understand that the critical part of our mission is our unity? And if we don't have unity, we'll never get discernment. I mean, that's part of that whole mix. If Jesus prayed for it, I ask all of us, how often do we pray for it? Because if he prayed for it, obviously we need to. Otherwise, we get separated by our opinions, our ideology, our preferences, and what we think and how we think God should behave. And I don't know about you, but I really don't want to tell God how he should behave. So understand that God plays by a different set of standards. Number two, less is more. Gideon said, I was the least of the least. But God chose Gideon and 300 men instead of 32,000 to deliver an army that was far superior in numbers. Now, we should be familiar with this. But think about how it plays out in our lives. I just finished a series about investment, the generosity factor, where he says, you know what, at least take 10% in the Old Testament, first fruits, and if you obey me, I'm going to bless you. If not, there's consequences, there's a curse. And my question is, do we really believe God? Do we really believe, do we really believe that God can take 90% and make that far larger than 100% if we all had it. I mean, that's really what that says. We're going to trust God that he's going to take less and make it more. I'm curious where our faith is. Here's a third principle. God is gracious even when we try not to hear him. Remember the key phrase that they did not listen? But God delivered them anyway. Remember the storyline when Gideon first tore down the altar of Baal and they got angry and says, we're going to kill you? But God delivered Israel anyway. And there are times when we test God, even when we already know what we need to do, but God is gracious. He answers that fleece. And there are moments where we allow self-deception to rule our mind and our heart, but God is gracious. He is always with us, and he never leaves us nor forsakes us. There are days when we lay fleeces out trying to get out of God what he's called us to do and to be, but God is gracious. He never quits loving us. He is patient. So you say this morning that you love God. The question is, do you have the courage to act on it? You claim to live by faith. Do you have the heart to live it? In light of this story, here's what we're going to do at GBC. 
We're going to love God, and we're going to do it the way Jesus said we ought to. We're going to love him with everything that we have, our mind, our heart, our soul, our body. We're going to walk by faith, which means we're going to fix our eyes on Jesus, who's the author and finisher of our faith. Not on some political system, not on our culture, not on our world circumstances. We're going to live We're going to live with our eyes so fixed on him, nothing, nothing can tear that vision away from us. We're going to confess our sins to each other. When someone confesses, we're not going to sit there and say, well, how could you? Didn't you know what you, I mean, don't you understand that whole rational thing we do? No, we're going to walk with them. And when they fall, we're going to pick them up. You know, I think somewhere in scripture, it says that we are to forgive like Christ has forgiven us. And that we believe that every human life in all its forms at every stage matters. So we're going to sit down, we're going to listen to stories, and we're going to walk with them into God's story. And that's true for every single person. Amen? By our choice, we're going to live the love of God and we're going to tear down the idols. We are going to tear down those things that bind us, that we're enslaved. We are no longer going to be victims. Like the song that we sang just before the message, we are no longer slaves. As Paul says, we are conquerors. In fact, he says we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. And and instead of building walls for our protection, we're going to go on the offensive. We're going to take hell's gates off its hinges, and we're going to rest those behind the walls of hell. And even though it seems so immeasurably large and Evil is so grand. You understand with 300 people, he can take on armies of 60,000 and have them running. Do you really believe that? C.T. Studd made this comment. I think the quote's on the screen here. We get it. Maybe. Maybe I didn't put it in. Listen to it. Some wish to live within the sound of a church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within the yard of hell. That was by C.T. Studd. Now I can imagine when I say things like this, there will be those that say, you know, it can't be done. That's the logic of our emotions. See, our desire is to be safe, religious people. And so often what God tells us to do defies human logic. But lives are at stake. Do you realize that somebody took time to come alongside of us? How can we then not do the same? There'll be those who cry, but what about me? I'm one of the least of these. And again, the logical motion, we sit there and say, I I can't do this. We're like Gideon saying, no way, Lord. I need proof, I need proof, I need proof. And all along the way, and, and then God tests his own faith, saying, okay, I'm going to whittle 32,000 down to 300. I still remember when I was called to preach. I remember the place, the location. Don't want to go into the whole story. The problem was I was 16, and I was terrified of public speaking. In fact, I took a few zeros in English because I refused to stand up and give a speech. 
And I'll be honest, and I don't know if I said this before, logically, when I was weighing my options before I came to GBC, there was other offers that made a whole lot of sense and a whole lot of reasons. In fact, part of me said, you know, I'd given this 36 years and I'm going to go do something different in terms of scale, but God kind of quietly knocked me in my head. Actually, it was more than quiet and said, have I asked you to stop preaching yet? Of course, the answer was no. So here I am. And having said that, you need to know, Bev and I are very thankful we are here, okay? We love you guys, and uh, it feels like home. Here's what we discover along the way. Please hear what I'm saying out of this if you don't get anything else. If we listen to the voice of God, we must believe that what God tells us is true. If we listen to the voice of God, we must believe that what God tells us is true. And if we follow that truth, despite the illogic of what he's asking us to do, then all this stuff that we thought we needed to make us happy, we find out we don't need as much as we thought. What we discover along the way is that our marriages become alive. Our souls breathe life. We rediscover the value God places on us. We live our gift mix. We quit trying to be someone we're not. We stop trying to make other people someone they're not. And we become alive. And we discover what he says, that the truth shall set you free. That I've come that you might have life. That you might have abundant life. And we find that joy. We find that peace. And we then become transformed. Amen? So, you can pacify yourself saying, Gideon's the exception. God doesn't work that way. And you'll live enslaved to your bales. Or you can say, you know, my life is in your hands, Lord. Don't know what that means. Don't know where that's going to take me. I know that probably I'll end up doing things that uh, I never thought I could do, that you'll use me in ways that are beyond my imagination. And you'll find the transformation that only God can bring to your life. And that's our heart's desire for every single person here at GBC this morning. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. We're going to close with a song. As they do that... I do want to ask because there's a lot of different people here this morning, and I don't know your stories. I wish I did. I find people's stories fascinating. Um, Gets to the root causes about why we believe and what we do, what we do. But if you're here this morning and you've never initiated a, a relationship with Jesus Christ, we want to give you that opportunity to do that this morning. So if you're here, you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you want to find out what that is, I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to have someone go out with you to help you understand what that means. So if you're here, just stand up, and we're going to take care of business. Anybody? With these lights in my eyes, I don't always see everybody. If you want to talk to me afterwards, feel free to do that as well. Let's pray together. Father, it's often hard for us. We get excited when we hear about Gideon and we, we shout, yay, God, why? And then we quietly 
settle down into our own routines, into our own fallacy thinking, and we live this desperate life that clings to our own idols. Forgive us for that. We confess, Lord, that we have not always fixed our eyes on you. Help us to turn our attention away from all those things that distract us. Thank you that we can worship. Thank you that you don't leave us even when we walk away from you. You pursue us with a holy love. I pray for those here here this morning, Lord, that just have a whole lot of doubts. Um, May your spirit minister to them in ways that are, are profound and unexplainable. Thank you, Lord, for this day. Thank you for our privilege to be here to worship you. I just hope that it was honoring you and acceptable to you. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. And everyone said, amen.